Please be seated in God's house. So very good to be back with you. I invite you to turn your Bibles to Luke 23. Luke 23 is where we can be turning to on this Independence Day weekend, where we are indeed thankful that we can gather together publicly. And whether it's legal or not, we're going to be gathering, but it's nice to be able to do it when it's legal and have the protection to be able to do such uh, so that we can freely and enjoy this time that God has given us as a nation that we might be able to gather and invite those freely. Uh, We are not, at least yet, quite like China such that it's completely illegal and you have to gather together in basements and holes in the ground and barns out in the middle of the woods where they gather together to worship which we may see those days, and if we do see those days, we'll gather and we'll worship. But right now we're such that we can invite our friends, come to New Covenant Community Church, 1045 at Sunday, and we'll worship the Lord together as we open his word and seek together to be fed from his word. Uh, It is good to be back. Last week I was at Super Summer, which is a camp, a conference rather, that is held at Cedarville University. And uh, boy, what a wonderful time Uh, super summer is the name is somewhat misleading it sounds as though it's a week of students playing dodgeball and eating pizza all week with the name super summer Uh, but super summer is actually a student leadership conference and the goal and aim is to advance Christian student leaders in their homes in their churches in their schools and in their communities that they might shine a greater light for Christ And I'm so very thankful that uh, we took a great group this year from New Covenant Community Church. There were 15 of us all together, and that's why you see these wonderfully colored shirts. There's different colors of shirts. Uh, As a matter of fact, if you are one of the students that went to Super Summer, just stand up real quick. If you were at Super Summer, you can look around and see those different colored shirts, except for Nathan and Lauren. They're the ones that wanted to make the rest of us look bad and dress nice on Sunday. So thank you, guys. You can be seated. And, uh, And just a special thanks... Uh, to Travis and to KJ, they went with me, not as students, but as adult leaders. They fulfilled different capacities. KJ was a worship leader of a particular school at Super Summer, which represented a a certain age group. And uh, Travis was a family leader. He was a discipleship leader for a group of about eight to ten students for the week. And those guys took a week off work to be there that week, last week, uh, with us. So guys, thank you so much. I love you and appreciate you. And... uh, Super Summer next year is June 26th to June 30th, so go ahead and mark your calendars now for that. Great opportunity. Many of the students that went already came back and gave just a wonderful report to their families of what a wonderful week it has been. Uh, Adults, I encourage you to consider, whether you have children or not, perhaps you're even an empty nester, uh, consider going as a family leader. Uh, You don't have to jump through a whole bunch of hoops. You basically just have to be there to help serve as a chaperone and to help guide a group of 8 to 10 students uh, through discussion questions that are already lined out for you. You basically are just there to disciple and love on young people as you watch God do an amazing work in their life. And can I just tell you, as an adult that has gone to Super Summer for the past several years now, it is a sweet time of sitting at the feet of Jesus. It's a sweet time of hearing his word preached. And me personally, I'm very refreshed this week from just having had some time to sit at his feet and just to enjoy this, his presence. Uh, Nick Gaston, you're going next year. He doesn't know that yet. I didn't tell him, but I've already, I've already blocked out his calendar for him. He's going. He doesn't know that yet, but I just know that he'd be <laughs> Some of you also are going. I haven't told you yet either, but I'll, just, I'll, I'll surprise you. for uh, That'll be my gift to you next year that I'll tell you you're going. And uh, 
Uh, and just as a heads up for some of you people that are in areas of leadership and ministry, uh, for our group that came from New Covenant Community Church, uh, some of them have probably already approached you. Uh, one of the things that we did just as a church, and this was not part of this scheduled conference, but we as a New Covenant Community Church, we sat down together and I began to equip the students to help fulfill certain areas of ministry. Uh, maybe not even to fulfill by themselves, but to begin helping in certain areas such that when they as the next generation of the church reach adulthood, that they are well equipped, that they're not lost and floundering in the world trying to figure out how it is to carry forth the mission that Jesus has given them, but that we can love them and disciple them and show them how to do ministry. We can show them how to follow the word of God. So just know that that's coming. If you're in an area of leadership, if you haven't already had young people come up to you and say, hey, we did this meeting with Pastor Ben, he gave us this job, then you're supposed to show us this. Just know that that is likely coming for a number of areas of ministry. Uh, but now it is time for us to get into God's word, Luke 23. Uh, and we come to the story in Luke chapter 23, find your way to verse 32. We come to the very first ever Good Friday is the text that we'll be in that I believe God has given me to share with you this morning. Verse 32, it says, There were also two others, criminals, led with him to be put to death. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left, then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And they divided his garments and cast lots, and the people stood looking on. But even the rulers with them sneered, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ, the chosen of God. The soldiers also mocked him, coming and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And the inscription was also written over him in letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew, saying, This is the king of the Jews. Then one of the criminals who were hanged, blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing that you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. So where this scripture takes us is to that Passover Friday in the spring of approximately 30 AD, 30 years after the very first Christmas, and Jesus has fulfilled his ministry. He has proclaimed the good news to the captives, which is all of us, that there is salvation found in his name, that we are to receive him, that he is there to take away our sin, that we must repent, we must go and sin no more and trust in Christ, that he is coming down to save us. He's coming to wear our sinfulness, that we might wear his righteousness and have right standing again before God. And then there's this thing that comes about, this betrayal of Judas Iscariot that brings about the cross. He's now dying on the cross and he's being crucified among criminals. 
as it was foretold of 700 years of 700 years prior by the prophet Isaiah saying that he would be numbered among the transgressors so it happened just like it was in God's mind for it to happen that Jesus would pay the penalty of our sin among these other lawless ones and one criminal is a lost man he continues to blaspheme God and the other however uh, is obviously comes to salvation he asks for God to remember him for Jesus to remember him when he comes into his kingdom so we see this salvation that happens on to one of the men that is dying next to Jesus now what we have in this example is perhaps one of the rawest examples of salvation that we have in all of scripture and the reason I say it's the rawest example of salvation that we have in all of scriptures because this man had lived a criminal's life uh, the Bible the word used for the thief is not just a thief but he was one that would steal and pillage he was one that would many times abuse those who he would steal from he would ruin their property perhaps even torture those that he robbed things from this was a hardened criminal that comes to know Jesus he repents of his sin and yet this man had never been inside the walls of a church uh, we're, we're left to think that he probably never went into the temple he's never been part of a Bible study he likely does not know the Torah which is the first five books of the Bible which is what they would have had in scrolls which would have been the scriptures they would have had at the time uh, he's never been part of a Bible study never been part of a Sunday school he likely has not heard any preaching if if he has heard any it's been very very little uh, he's never been to a potluck which for some of us we think that's necessary for salvation uh, he's never eaten a casserole out of a nine by 13 pan y'all like it, he is a hardened criminal and he gets saved so the question on the table for us then is at a minimum which indeed this is at a minimum for this man this raw example we have of salvation at a minimum what are the beliefs of conversion or in other words what are the beliefs that will coincide when a person is saved what is at the very core the most basic understanding of the person of Jesus who it is that we are to come to him when someone gets saved what will their theology be so in a world of much confusion I hope that this sermon helps us in understanding what makes a person a believer but also even for ourselves to rightly examine ourselves to to see whether or not we are in the fold to make our calling and election sure this morning these are the places in which I pray that this sermon feeds us today so if you would let's pray together father in heaven we love your word and it's our desire that we would see rightly what is there for us to see this morning and God make these things plain to us God encourage us as we go about this weekend and let us rejoice for all the proper things. And we love you so much, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. And all the church says, amen. So first we see here, look to verse 39 if you would. We see some examples or markers of unbelief first. Before we get into the beliefs of conversion, we first see some things happening that is consistent among unbelievers today. The criminal who does not repent, in verse 39, he says, Then one of the criminals who hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. 
Now, this example of this non-repentant criminal, this unbeliever that is dying, hanging on a cross next to Jesus, this is very much typical of the way in which non-believers of today act. This guy is blaspheming. He's mocking Christ, even in the midst of his suffering. Remember, this man is also being crucified. He also has been beaten like Christ. He also has had his hands driven through with nails as well as his feet, and he's hanging there bleeding and dying, strategically suffocating to death as is the Roman crucifixion was designed. And he would lift himself up on these painful hands and on those feet that had been driven through just so that he can mock Christ. He's putting himself through agony just so that he can purposely blaspheme. And yet you see something very similar, although may not being crucified, you see something very similar today in this world that is full of hurt. In this world that can be very difficult to go through and the trials that all of us believers or not will traverse through as a result of being in a world that has been infected by sin. You will see them lift themselves up even from having gone through, say, someone who's gone through a very painful experience. They will lift themselves up from that painful experience and say, well, if God is real, why is there all of this suffering? So you see it's a very similar blaspheming that just like that criminal, the non-repentance man who died next to Jesus, much in the same way they will mock even in the midst of their suffering. You see this non-repentant thief that was dying on the cross next to Jesus? He questioned the lordship and did not have trust in Christ. If you are the Christ, he says, save yourself and us. This mocking, this jeering, this questioning. If you are the Lord, if you are who you say that you are, the Christ, the Son of God, the Savior of the Lord, then, then do this kind of thing. And this manifests itself commonly in our world today amongst unbelievers when and it has a a type of humility but I would say it's a false humility when you'll see a hear a non-believer and their reason for not coming to church their reason for not submitting to the lordship of Jesus Christ their reason for not bringing their sin before him is because they'll say something like well you don't know what I've done you don't know the bad things in my life that I've done and at first that can seem like humility we think to them we think to ourselves well, what, man, it would be just such a wonderful thing if they would see the mercy and grace of Christ. But at the very root, at the very core of this, it's the same kind of questioning of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's like, who are they to say? Jesus has already said who he says he is. He is the Christ. He is the Lord. And for someone to then say, well, you don't know the bad things I've done. It's, it's at the very core, at the very root, them saying, he's not worth being trusted as Lord. He's not powerful enough to take away my sin. He's just a man. Because if, he, if they believed that he was Lord, as he says he is, if they were to believe Jesus to be the truth teller that we know him to be as expressed in his word, there would be no problem in them bringing their sin before him. But they questioned the lordship of Jesus Christ, as did the man, the non-repentant man that was dying on the cross next to Jesus. You'll notice also that this man, this non-repentant man on the cross, he had an only interest, his only interest was getting himself out of that situation. He's saying, if you are the Christ, get us out of this situation. Save us from this painful situation. His only interest was a worldly well-being. And isn't that what we see all around us among unbelievers? Uh, it's, not a, it's not an interest in things of eternality. It's not an interest of being right with God in eternity, understanding that the judgment of God resides on the center. That was not his concern. His concern was the momentary pain in which he was. 
And we see, we see this earthly, temporal thing. I even heard it said this past week, a quote, uh, somebody said that uh, he who has the most toys when they die wins. And boy, isn't that the way in which many unbelievers live? It's about this earthly gain. They're not worried about things of eternity. They're only interested in the things of time, which is exactly what this man on the cross was believing and thinking. Now, the irony of all this whole thing is he's saying to Jesus, if you are the Son of God, save yourself and us. And yet, this is exactly what Jesus is doing. He's dying on the cross to pay for our sins. He's in the process of paying for our sins that we might be saved. Now, if you would look to verse 40, and we begin to get into the beliefs of conversion as it shifts over to the other criminal that was on the other side of Christ hanging on a cross. Verse 40, it says, But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God? seeing that you are under the same condemnation. Now, it's important to note here that at one point in time, everyone around the cross, with the exclusion of likely John, the apostle that was very much closest to Jesus, and Mary, it gives us this picture that everyone was mocking Christ. And yes, even including this repentant man. In the synoptic gospels, the other synoptic gospels, Matthew and Mark, it tells us very explicitly that both criminals were mocking and jeering Christ. It gives us this picture that all of them, the criminals, as well as the Roman soldiers, as well as the Pharisees, even the passerbys, the people that were just in the crowd, at one point in time, they are all mocking Christ. So here's your picture. You have Jesus, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. He's paying for all of our sin that you and I might be, have right standing before God. You've got the criminals on each side. You've got the Roman soldiers who, is, who are in charge of actually carrying out the crucifixion and doing the laborious job of, of pinning a, a person's body onto these cross pieces of wood. You have all that going on, and you have the people there that are mocking and jeering. And even the soldiers, even the Pharisees, the crowd, and yes, even these criminals. And after all this mocking and all this jeering, and even these two men that are, would pull themselves up on these painful hands and feet just so that they could blaspheme Christ, after a while, one of these men starts to get quiet. The rest of the mocking and jeering continues. But one of these men next to Christ is quiet. And then it happens that one man, the non-repentant man, continues to blaspheme Christ. And then all of a sudden there's this change. Because again, the other Gospels give us a picture that at one point in time, both of them were mocking Christ. But then Luke, having the whole picture together where we're here today, there was a point in which he stopped blaspheming Christ. And then he rebukes the one that was mocking Christ. And I just wonder what... I mean, what was he thinking about? As he goes from a blasphemer to then believing upon Christ, his lordship, and all the things that we'll see here, I wonder what it was that he was thinking about. It makes me wonder if he, he heard, he maybe saw the sign that they pinned above the cross that said he was the king of the Jews, and maybe he thought he was a king that could help him. Maybe it was when Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, that impressed upon his heart that this was a sinless, righteous man. I don't know what it was, but the thing that is clear here is that a salvation took place. 
This man, this hardened criminal that was dying on the cross, who was at the moment, at one point was jeering and mocking Christ, then gets saved, and then all of a sudden he has a clarity of mind that he has never experienced in all of his life. And we see this clarity coming out. We see the fruit of this salvation begin to unfold for this man, yes, even while he is dying. And the first thing that we see unfolding that is now clear in his mind, this belief of conversion, firstly, is the fear of God. He says to that other man, he re- after rebuking him, he says, Do you not even fear God, seeing that you are under the same condemnation? This at the very core for this man, this fear of God overtook him. That he was guilty against God. That God is a righteous God and perfect in all of his judgments and has every right to express judgment. Now he probably doesn't know all the theological lingo and all the details of all that. But he knows that God is righteous and he fears God. He's afraid that he, that he could possibly stand before God in his sin. That thought is something fearful to him such that he would even look to the other criminal across Christ and say, Do you not even fear God? It says in Psalm 19, 23, it says, The fear of the Lord leads to life. And boy, didn't it lead to life for this repentant criminal. And he who has it will abide in satisfaction. He will not be visited with evil. Now, this is absolutely the case. You think of believers today on this earth this very moment. When you think of someone who has a true conversion, there is absolutely 100% of the time coinciding with that salvation a fear of God. Yes, more fully equipped and developed as someone is sanctified, as someone continues on in life becoming more Christ-like, but even from the time that someone is first saved, there is this absolute understanding of the fear of God that I cannot stand before Almighty God in my my sin. You think of someone who might even say they're a Christian, but it's falsely converted. There is no fear of God. God's just this force in the sky to make them feel good and to give them a blessed life. But there is not this fear of God. This fear of God is absolutely what we see coinciding with this very raw example of salvation that we see in the Word of God. And we might imagine, it doesn't tell us this, but if you imagine the picture of your mind, Jesus, criminals, Roman soldiers, Pharisees, those in the crowd, you see all this and the mocking and jeering, and then all of a sudden this one stops after being quiet, and then he starts... After his conversion, he's now blessing God. He's now calling out for mercy from God. And he's even saying to the other criminal, do you not even fear God? And I have to imagine that probably the crowd was a little taken back. The Roman soldiers that were standing at the foot of the cross, they, they probably thought, oh, man, what, is, what has gotten into this guy? Uh, he might have even been, we don't know, but it, he might have even been ridiculed. He might have even been made fun of, perhaps even suffering physical abuse as people would throw stones and spit and all those kinds of things. Look to verse 41 as we continue to see what the beliefs of conversion, very raw, basic conversion are. This man continues on as he is now again speaking to the other criminal, the non-repentant man. He says, and we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. As I mentioned a moment ago, crucifixion, and the more I've studied as I have become more familiar with the way in which the Romans would do this, it was, I mean, if your plan was to make death as agonizing as possible, the crucifixion was a masterful way to do it. It was essentially a way in which someone would be systematically 
suffocated to death, but ensuring that their body would experience the maximum amount of pain in the process. And the reason is, is because being stretched out on a cross, nailed to it in that kind of way. You think of the excruciating pain from the nails and the hands of the feet in and of by itself. But as the body is being stretched out, so is the diaphragm, the muscle that causes the rib cage to go up and down that allows a person to breathe. Now, a person's instinct, their involuntary, non-voluntary desire to breathe, is, it's, it's like a reflex. It's not something, yes, I mean, we can control our breathing, but we don't control our breathing at night, right? The body's innate desire to breathe is there such that, you know, you think it'd be easier just to let yourself hang, don't breathe, and let yourself pass out and just die that way. That would be the, what you would think if you were being crucified. But the thing is, is the body won't let you. The body, the body will struggle. Even if you were to try and suppress your body from breathing, your body is, go- the diaphragm is going to try and to get the rib cage to pull in air. And you can't help that your body will <gasps> extend up so that you can get a breath before you sink back down again. So your body is in this terrible cycle of staying alive and, and, and you're systematically suffocating to death. And the thing that would stop you from being able to pull yourself up was not the pain. It was that your body would simply become too dehydrated and weak to even be able to pull yourself up to take a breath. This is what our Savior did for us, church. Thank God for him. Thank God for his sacrifice. And this is what is taking place in this man that is now using, it's only a number of times you can do this for so many hours until your body loses its strength. And this man that's being crucified knows this. And he's using, he formerly was using those gasps of breath to use for words to blaspheme Christ. And now he's doing it in a way that expresses and shows us his conversion. And the thing that was next in that last verse that we read that it shows us is that he became convinced of the sinfulness of man and of the sinlessness of Christ. Did you hear it? And we indeed justly, the man says, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. We're sinners, the man says. But this man, as he notions to Jesus, has done nothing wrong. This man was not only have a fear of God that coincided with his conversion, but he also had an understanding of the sinfulness of man and the sinlessness of Jesus Christ. Now, yes, he probably didn't have all the theological lingo in the background to understand all these things perfectly, but he knew something of his brokenness and something of Christ's wholeness. He knew these things. So many times, and even myself, you think that it was just like a last-ditch effort kind of thing that this guy got saved. And thank God that this guy got saved, but, but you see the proper pieces in place. You see the understandings that always coincide with conversion, even for a man that is strategically being suffocated to death. He had a fear of God. He had an awareness of his sin and the sinlessness of Christ. These are the things that he understood. Now, it's important for us to remember the difference between primary and secondary doctrines. Here's what I mean by that. I know plenty of you believe that the rapture of the church will happen before the great tribulation as it's described to us in the book of Revelation, okay? Many of you also believe that Christians will go through the great tribulation, okay? In my opinion, this would be an example of a, of a secondary doctrine. The command for the believer is the same one way or the other. I certainly would not like to go through the great tribulation, but if I do, I'm going to stay faithful to Christ. And if it means my head, my head rolls for it, so what? That's just the way it goes. So I, that, that would be an example of a secondary doctrine, something that does not 
particularly pertain to someone being saved, the things that they will understand when true conversion happens, the belief that coincide with conversion. But what we're talking about today are primary doctrines. You take away the fear of God, you take away the understanding of how you tell someone to be saved. You take away the sinfulness of man, you take away the whole need for Christ to die for us. You take away the sinlessness of Christ, and it means nothing that he died on the cross for us. He's just another man. But you co coincide the fear of God, you coincide the sin sinfulness and the sinlessness of Christ. These things are primary doctrines. These are what you'd call hills that you die on. And can I just tell you, dear church, that as I was at Super Summer this past week and dealing with students all week, Man, you know, I mean, we have a lot to be thankful for in America. Amen? I mean, that we get to celebrate with this weekend represents and all these things. Man, what a, what, I still believe this is a great, great place to live, and, and, and we're very thankful for all those things. But yet, in the midst of that, we all see the darkness. We all see the direction. It's, a, it's an ugly thing. It's a terrible direction. But even though for my lifetime, at least, this is the darkest I've seen the direction of our culture going. I've never been more hopeful for the church after I experienced what I experienced this week. Because I've never seen, I've never seen 16-year-olds with such a passion and zeal for the Lord. It's incredible. And because here's the thing, there are generations, some of you sitting in the room right now, and I would perhaps even throw myself in, the, in this category with you all, that, that during our early years of children, the transformational years of being a child and growing up and your perception of what is normal is all being built, uh, mostly that was positive for many of us in being a Christian. It, it meant something nice to go to church and it meant something that you would be treated with respect and honor and you were not marginalized and all these things. Yet there's a generation of young people growing up and all they've ever known is being marginalized for their faith. That's all they've ever known. And it's creating this tenacity it's creating this, I know what the Word of God says, I know what it's called me to do, and if it means I'm going to lose friends, then I'll lose friends for it. That's what I see happening with even 15, 16-year-olds as I experienced it this week. I've never had more hope for the Church of Jesus Christ than I've had today, church. Because I see the way in which even in the midst of this persecution, in the midst of, of young kids always, only, ever knowing, having been marginalized for their faith. It's creating this great strength, this great passion, and nothing really seems all that lukewarm about it. It's awesome what's transpiring here. Uh, they know which hills to die on when it comes to secondary and primary doctrines. Uh, they know the sinfulness of man. They know the sinlessness of Christ. And they're devoted to these things. They see them for what they're worth. And it is awesome to see these things transpiring. But next we're going to look at, in verse 42... Perhaps the most revealing sentence of the beliefs of conversion that, that, that were coinciding with this man, this repentant criminal that died on the cross next to Jesus. Verse 42. It says, then he said to Jesus, okay, now he's no longer talking to the other criminal. He turns to Jesus and he says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now that sentence alone is very revealing of what this man believed, the, the beliefs that went along with conversion. One of which, and I'll give these to you quickly if you're taking notes, be ready to write. The first of which being the lordship of Jesus. He called him Lord. And he referenced this kingdom that he would go into. He recognized him not just as Lord, but as a king. As the Lord, as the king. This was a belief that went along with true legitimate conversion 
You take away the lordship of Jesus Christ. You have someone who says they're Christian, but they question the lordship of Jesus Christ. They question his kingdom. You're dealing with an unbeliever. And again, this is not that we point fingers. This is so that we have clarity of mission. This is that we know who to preach the gospel to. This is so that we know whether or not we're in the fold that I preach these things to you today. The other thing that we see is that he believed in the resurrection. The man that died on the cross, the repentant thief, this criminal, this hardened criminal that had now turned to Jesus, he it, it tells us in this sentence that he believed in the resurrection. He says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He didn't believe that Jesus was just going to die on the cross and go into a grave forever. He believed that Jesus was going to rise again, that he was going to go into his kingdom. It tells us that he believed in the resurrection of Jesus. He wasn't going to stay dead. Now, these two things, the lordship of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus, it just makes us think of Romans 10.9. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And so it was for the man who repented of sin and trusted in the Savior. The next thing that we see from this very information-packed sentence is that this man had complete reliance, had a complete reliance upon grace. Again, think of what this thief had gone through. A life as a hardened criminal, and he's dying. He's been beaten at the whipping post, which again, many times people would never even survive the whipping post. He can feel his body strategically, systematically suffocating to death as the Roman crucifixion was designed. This man is dying. And unlike the other man that was just trying to fix his earthly painful situation, he then completely and utterly throws himself upon the mercy of God. You could liken the heart of this man who died next to Jesus, who's now in heaven with him, to the example that Jesus gives in Luke 18, 9 to 14, when it gives us a, an, an understanding of what this kind of reliance upon grace is like, and it pictures for us well what this criminal was going through. Jesus says, and also he spoke a parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Jesus says, two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as even raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. This man dying on the cross next to Jesus with his true conversion, he was humbling himself and throwing himself fully and only upon the grace that Jesus could offer him. Now, I do not have these next things as main points, but I just want to give you some other markers, if you will, of salvation, some things that we see from this man that died that always coincide salvation as we see from Scripture. The one thing that we see this man doing, another thing that we see this man doing, and again, you will not see these on the screen, but these are just additional things I'll give you, is that this man made his faith public. It was a public event as he's hanging there dying. There is a crowd there. 
His faith in Jesus, uh, it was loud enough for the man on the other side of the cross. So if you imagine how close two crosses, three crosses could be, this man was loud enough for the other guy to hear him. It's loud enough for the rest of the crowd to hear him that he is putting his faith in Jesus Christ. He made his faith public. This is a fruit of salvation that you will see. And yes, again, remember even likely enduring jeering and mocking himself as he once was, was blaspheming Christ. And now he is no longer. And this man turns to Christ, and you see coinciding again with his conversion, this making, a, making it public. You find somebody who is ashamed of Christ, that is someone who Christ will be ashamed of also. You also see that he made it personal. This man dying on the cross was, it made it personal. He didn't try to piggyback upon the spirituality of any family member. He said, Lord, remember me. He didn't say, Lord, remember us criminals. He did not say, Lord, remember us thieves. He did not say, Lord, remember me on, on the right and left of you, Jesus. He says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. It's a great lesson for us that we cannot piggyback our spirituality off of anyone or anything. And boy, there are a lot of people out there doing that. And they think that just because their grandma took them to VBS and they said one thing one time, but it has had no impact on their life, it meant nothing. It was an empty set of words that they said that meant absolutely nothing. They trust in that for their salvation. They trust for that to take them to heaven and not the full grace of Jesus Christ, the blood that was poured out on our behalf. This man made it a personal faith. It says in Matthew 7, 16 to 20, it says, You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bear, bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by your fruits, you will know them. This man hanging on the cross, dying next to Jesus, was bearing all this fruit, even while he's suffocating to death. And boy, doesn't that just give us encouragement for the mission of God that even while this man is dying, that this man could turn and repent and yes, even express fruit. Yes, even make it public. And I guarantee you that if somehow this man would have survived off that cross, he would have been baptized. I guarantee it. So if you're a believer and you've not been baptized yet, and, and that's not something that, and, and you know that that's the biblical command, and there's not this urgency to walk in obedience, it's a good reason for you to question your salvation. It's a good reason for you to think, man, I... Is Jesus just a thing for me or is he my Lord that I obey? This is something worth considering because more than just tickling your ears, I'd love for you to really hear the truth today and to know the Lord Jesus Christ, that your sins might be washed and you'll be known to God by the righteousness of Jesus. Nothing would be a greater joy for me. And you might think to yourself, though, Pastor, could somebody really make such a 180? You really mean to tell us that in this guy's dying moments, he goes from blaspheming to then becoming a Christian to then expressing fruit all in his dying moments. Could that really happen? And what I would say is absolutely, and we have an incredible example that we've seen in the book of Acts and the person of Paul of Tarsus. You remember the story of him going to Damascus? He had the papers in his hand. The Bible even says while he was breathing threats against the church, Previous to that, he had just gotten papers, letters that made it legal for him to go to Damascus where the church was flourishing and to go and persecute and kill the church just like he did with Stephen. Paul was on his way to do that. That's what he was going to go do. And then all of a sudden, salvation touches his life. He meets Jesus. He knew something of the fear of God. He falls to the ground in fear and he says, who are you, Lord? 
Who are you, Lord? Not only was he fearful, he recognized Jesus as Lord. He absolutely knew that Jesus resurrected because he's standing there before the very presence of Jesus. He knows that he's Lord, and he has no choice but to throw himself upon his grace. He knew that he was completely and utterly weak before God, and we know this because of what he wrote to Timothy later in 1 Timothy 1, verse 13. Paul says, I formerly was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man. Paul says, I was just like that guy. I, I was not, didn't have anything good on my mind, and God saved me. And you see these things, these beliefs of conversion that coincide this fear of God, this understanding of the sinfulness of man and the sinlessness of Christ, that Jesus is Lord, the resurrected Lord, upon whose grace we can throw ourselves completely and fully. Now, you don't have to be a Bible scholar to understand these things. A child can understand these things. This is why children might be saved. It's an incredible thing that we see here. Now, look to verse 43, I invite you now, as we see the results of these beliefs of conversion, the results of true conversion. We've seen the beliefs that coincide with them. And then we can see the results, the sweet verse that says, And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. You know, I'm really glad that Jesus used the word paradise there. I learned this this week, and this was just one of the joyous times of sitting at the feet of Jesus this week as I was preached to. Preachers love being preached to, by the way. And... Uh, I learned that that word paradise is a Persian word that means a walled garden. And in that culture and in that day, there were many times, if, if someone was very, very rich, they would have multiple gardens. And one garden was like the common area. It was, it was not where special people would go. It was just kind of where everyone resided. Uh, but this Persian word paradise describes a walled garden. And when somebody was invited, whoever owned this walled garden that not everyone could get in, and inside the walled garden, by the way, was, was the choicest fruit, the, the best plants. They would transplant plants. When they saw a plant coming up that was just like beautiful and perfect, they would transplant it to put it inside the paradise, inside the walled garden. And only those, only those that were invited by the one who owned the walled garden could, were allowed in it. And those people were even called the friend of the garden. And inside that paradise, inside the walled garden, if, if someone was invited by the owner, they would, they would walk with the owner in the garden and they would take the choicest fruit and they would enjoy it while they talked. And this is the picture that Jesus gives us when he says, today you'll be with me in paradise. You're, you're going to walk with me in a walled place. Not everyone's allowed in. The bad stuff is out. The temptation is out. It's not in there. The sin is out. It's, it's not in my walled garden. It's not in this heaven. It's, it's a sinless environment. And you'll walk with me in this garden. We'll, we'll eat together of the choicest fruit. There'll be complete peace together in this walled garden. Sounds a bit like the Garden of Eden, doesn't it? Sounds a bit like the way things were before sin infused the world. Where it says, the Bible says that Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of the morning. 
They walked in the paradise. They walked in the walled garden. They they walked in this place of sweet security where none of the painful things of life could even have a chance of getting in. And this is what Jesus looks over to this man who had repented. And we see the fruits of the man. We see the things that he believed that do coincide with salvation. So when you see people, which the world is full of them, when they say they're believers, and it doesn't include things like understanding the sinfulness of man and the righteousness of God and all these things, just know that that person's probably just preach the gospel to them because they need it they desperately need it that they might be saved and Jesus looks to this man that has been saved he's this man has fully completely and utterly thrown himself Jesus remember me when you come into your kingdom and Jesus looks at him and says assuredly I say to you without a doubt I say to you without question there's no ifs ands or buts but you absolutely are going to walk with me today in the paradise in this walled garden today you will be with me in paradise my greatest desire as a pastor I like pastoring for a number of reasons but my greatest desire is that you are set such that your sins are washed and that Jesus could look at you and say that when you die because for that man it was going to be really soon that day both of them were going to die such that when you die Jesus would look at you and say today you'll be with me in paradise and I just wonder if as you have if we have as we have preached through the beliefs of conversion I wonder if there's anybody today that have heard a couple of these things and think I, you know I don't have that I don't have the fear of God. I, I, I've seen God as just this force that is commonly preached by many pastors, that he's just this force that's there to make me happy and bless me with whatever. I wonder, I, wonder if you've, I wonder if you've been saved. I wonder if you've been converted. And like we do almost every single time that we gather together, I want to give you an invite to do that. Uh, because there's no special words I can give you. There's no special prayer that's like a magical thing that saves you. Just trust in Jesus like that thief did. Realize that you're broken, just like me, just like that man that died next to Christ, and that you're a sinful person, but that Jesus died in your stead. He's not sinful. He did not commit any sin, and it's a terrible thing to think that you and your sin could walk before a holy and righteous God, even after having been extended salvation, that to think, I mean, I hope that strikes fear in your heart, the thought of that, and then just throw yourself upon the grace of Christ. And his promise is that he'll save you. That's the promise of God's word. Would you stand as we bow our heads together? As we come to the music now, we can begin to worship God. I just want to invite you, again, not to any special thing, but other than to be saved. Accept the redemption that Jesus has won for you. Receive him in the same way that that thief did. Not after anything, but, for, but, but to see, for your ears to be able to hear, you'll be with me in paradise. You'll be with me in that walled garden. If you're a Christian, you know how sweet that is. If you're a Christian today, you're looking forward to walking with Jesus in the choice garden to eat those choice fruits, to walk in the cool of the morning. If you're a Christian, you you love that. Your hope is all there. And you know there is nothing, absolutely nothing you could do to get yourself inside the wall. 
Jesus is the door of that walled garden that you have to walk through. There is no other way. So as a Christian, we just, we rest. Oh, Jesus. Thank you, God. Thank you that you promised that I could walk in this walled garden with you in paradise. Thank you, God, that that day is coming. When my life ends or when Jesus comes back, that absolutely, assuredly, just like Jesus said, will happen. And I would just love for you to have that assurance today. Can I just tell you that I would love for your life to have that hope? And this is what we invite. This is what we offer as a church. We don't offer anything else. We do potlucks and we have fellowship and we love all of it. But the thing, the greatest treasure that we offer is what Jesus has already done. And we're simply the church. We're just the church that Jesus gave the commandment to go and continue that message, share it with everyone that they might come to me like that thief next to me. They just threw themselves upon Jesus' grace. They just had the humility to recognize that they are sinful and broken. And to know that he is the resurrected king. Did you know that ancient writers, not scripture, but ancient writers who hated Christ and hated the ministry of Christ for the same reasons that the Pharisees did. Do you know that those documents have been found and you know what they've discovered? Is that even those that hated Christ attested to the resurrection. Why would anybody that hates Jesus affirm the greatest happening of all of human history? Because they could not deny that it was true. It was too plain. It was so plain. Do you know that the Bible says that the Roman soldiers who were guarding that night when the angel came and rolled the stone away, they had to be paid off. They had to be given hush money so that they wouldn't open their mouth about what happened. Did you know that non-scriptural writers, things that are not the word of God, but people who just wrote things down then, they attested to the same thing of how much money it was that those soldiers had to be given so that they wouldn't open their mouth about the fact that Jesus rose from the grave. So if you've been going through life thinking that this is just some kind of farce, this is just some kind of story, it ain't. It ain't. It's real. And Jesus loves you. And I believe with all my heart that there are those today that do not know Jesus. I know that there's people in the room today that do not know God. And while maybe not so graphic, you're like that other man. And you just have unbelief. And you don't have trust. And you're just concerned with what this world has to, has to offer. And you're only really concerned about making life comfortable. I just want to tell you plainly, don't be like that guy. Let your heart be quiet in this moment. And the distrust that your heart has displayed before God, just let this moment be your moment where you just go quiet. What, the rest of the world, just like in that moment, the rest of the world is jeering. They think we're all stupid for being here on Sunday morning. They're still jeering, trust me. Just let your heart be quiet for a minute, just like that man that got saved. And recognize these things that are true. And say in your heart, I'm not going to try to get you to say any kind of special words out of your mouth. In your heart, say to God, God, I'm sorry. Remember me. Have mercy on me. 
I believe to you to be Jesus, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. Have mercy on me because I need your mercy. And I trust you. I trust in your grace. The only thing left for you to do if you've done that right now is to say, God, thank you. Thank you for saving me. And the next step is to walk in obedience and be baptized. So if that was you today, I'm not asking for anything special other than that you let me know today so that we can schedule your baptism as you follow Christ. And as you begin to live a life that will then start looking like Christ, and Christ will clean your life up, you start looking more like Jesus, and then God will turn you into his design, which is to be part of the church here where, where you've been given the mission to carry forward this message. And then one day, whether soon or later, you're going to walk with God in the walled garden in the cool of the day where you enjoy the choicest of things. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. And God, we don't deserve any of all this that you've made, this walled garden, this walking with you, this way to be redeemed. God, we, we don't deserve any of that. And God, there just comes this place that if, if we were to consider for a moment, if we were to try and make a cult, if we were to try and create a false thing that allowed us to control people, Christianity is the last thing that any of us would have ever conceived of. A, a person raising from the dead, people, you, you restored bl sight to the blind, and you raised the lame to walk on their feet. God, God we would... Christianity is the last thing we would have construed in our mind. We would have come up with something so much more believable. So much more plain to our human mind. But God, we see the, we see the goodness of your handiwork. We see the miraculous. And we trust you to be true. And, and we just want to say thank you, God. Thank you for preparing that place in heaven for us where, where you even said, I'm, I'm, going, I'm going to that place. I'm going to that walled place where all the bad stuff is outside. And I'm, I'm going to make a house for you. Jesus, thank you. We didn't deserve any of that. So in all the things that you have prepared for us, we see your overwhelming goodness. God, I just pray for those that do not know you, that they too, their hearts would be overwhelmed by the goodness and greatness of our Lord and our Savior, in whom grace we trust, that they would trust you and know you, and that they too would walk in paradise with you. In Jesus' name, and all the church says, let's worship together.